You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoy today's episode, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Security Sandbox. I'm Amanda Fennell, Chief Security Officer and Chief Information Officer at Relativity, where we help the legal and compliance world solve complex data problems securely. And that takes a lot of creativity. One of the best things about a sandbox is you can explore and try anything. When good tech meets well-trained, empowered employees, your business is more secure. This season, we're exploring ways to elevate the strongest link in your security chain, people, through creative use of technology, process, and training. Grab your shovel and let's dig in. In today's episode, our sandbox heads to the psychology couch for a compelling conversation with cybersecurity evangelist, author, and host of the 8th Layer Insights podcast, Perry Carpenter. Also joining us is Marcin Schweiti, Relativity's Director of Global Security and IT. We're exploring how to craft a new age security program that works better for employees operating in different cultures and regions and gets them personally invested in their organization's security posture. So let's take off our shoes, get comfortable, and start talking. I'm going to be hard-pressed after reading your book to find something that we really disagree on, and I'm going to make that my <laughs> effort for this conversation. Okay. It's like how to find something you and I disagree on because the, it was just so many things that I was like, yes, yes, exactly. Like, why is this so difficult? One thing I will say before we get into some questions that yeah. I found most interesting about this this book, and I don't want the whole thing to be a book review or whatever, but uh, the, this transformational security awareness. I will say the thing I found the most interesting was that you were able to keep an energy behind it that didn't feel old and mm. stale, and I like we've been that. doing this a long time. Yeah, yeah, that's I'm one, surprised. That was my biggest thing with that is like, how do I try to make it readable um, and have a I think the phrase that I kept using in my own head when I was trying to write it is is how do I make it forward leading to where you read one sentence and you naturally want to read the next without it mm -hmm. sounding and I probably slipped every now and then but without it sounding pedantic or preachy. I think that that's a, what we come across so much in the security industry is that for any of us who've been in it for a while, we use the same terminology mm -hmm. and in same lingo. And it's almost to the point where that's how you get your chops and like you look at the person across from you like, okay, we understand each other yeah. because we're using that cultural knowledge. We have the same understanding. But the problem is that it's hard to keep people excited about something like security awareness when it sounds, like you said, pedantic. It sounds like, yeah. well, okay, so people, you know, we need to teach them and we need to be keeping it going and so on. So. My favorite part is that you did make it feel like it was still really fresh and something to be excited about and have energy for. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to start with something, not okay. an expected question. Here we go. Good. Your why determines your what. Mm -hmm. I do like this part. And I'd love for you to expand a little bit about what you think the why is or what the why should be. Yeah. Well, you know, coming from an analyst background, I'll give you the the analyst answer is the why is going to be an it depends. So <laughs> I think when it comes to security awareness or when it comes to any action, behavior, belief that you want somebody to have, you have to sell them on the why that's important and why that should be a core value within themselves. 
And so my why is going to be subtly different than your why, which is going to be subtly different than, um, let's say, somebody on the on, on a different team within your organization. So I think that there's this sliding scale of whys that we have to determine. But for us, we have to figure out what is the what is the why that I need to have and maintain as my core value and belief that's going to give me energy to try to do all the hard things on finding the why for everybody else. Because as soon as I can find that other person's why, let's say it's somebody in product marketing within a large retail organization, well, I, I need to tell them, I need to find a why that makes sense for them related to security or security behavior that then I can backtrack up and build all the messaging of, of the th- program that I need to put around that person. Well, March and you lead all these efforts with our internal security guardian champions, all these programs that we have where we really embedded security within the teams. I'm curious, what's your why? Or do you think that we've given these people a why they should care? Um. We are we are on the way there. Uh, like obviously, we started there. Um, you know, s- when you build programs like this, you usually start with with content, and that's actually not the right way to to start. Like basically, the content like tr- is throwing just knowledge at people, um, and, and and this is this is this is like this is good starting point, like as, as any. Uh, but in in the end, uh, this this needs to be impactful for a longer term. And the only way to make that impactful is actually you know, going into the why. We, we kind of wrapped it a little bit different. We, we thought about the context of the role and try to kind of leverage the, the, the tools that we are giving because it's not only only, only the, the knowledge, it's not only the awareness of it, but it's, it's also getting some, some power and some uh, permissions and some you know, uh, tools, techniques that, that they can leverage in their work. And that's actually, I think, wrapping Wrapping to back to this uh, to this why that we talk about uh, context and and, and the, the the real benefit of the role uh, that they play as as guardians. Is that yeah. you, oh go ahead Perry? Yeah, I was going to say that's that's exactly it. So it's not necessarily that we all need to use the same terminology on finding the why before the what, but is it is understanding the context that somebody sits in. And the things that motivate them, plus the things that they need to understand in order to um, do their job appropriately from a security perspective. And then I think there's another side of that on the back end is if and when we perceive that they are not living up to expectations or that, you know, quote unquote, failing in some way, is it because they don't have the right motivation or is it because I've somehow set them up to fail in that way? Um, or the organization, not me personally. <laughs> I'm, I'm for their success, but have they somehow been slotted in a in an area where either they don't have the right motivation, or they don't have the right tools, or they don't have the right staffing, or um, something else? There's. I, I think that if somebody is failing to perform the security functions of their job, before I put blame on somebody else, I need to look at the complete context of that situation and find out if we, as an organization, are failing them somehow. Well, that's certainly helpful for people to take accountability that it isn't, you know, it's not you, it's me, and I set you up for failure or I set you up for success, which I love. But one of the threads I saw that came across is not so much the failure and success rate. It was the this constant feeling that you wanted to induce in people for security of curiosity. Yeah. And it's intriguing to me because I think that's actually what makes people successful in life is curiosity. 
And when we lose our curiosity, it's whenever we become stale and tired or bored or don't have energy, as you had mentioned, for something. So uh, do you think that's the key to these good programs is that we're eliciting curiosity among people? And that's probably a question for both of you. Yeah, I'll I'll go first on that. I I think that curiosity is a is a core skill that some people have is they 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 know how to propel themselves forward by finding ways to be curious and to make things a game. Um and I think in other people we have to find ways to elicit that curiosity. But as soon as we become curious in something, we engage in that in a completely different way. I mean, that's why clickbait works so well in order to to get uh, pay-per-click type of stuff is if I can live, you know, give you a list of five things, five things that will make you a better lover and number four will blow your mind type of thing. All of a sudden you're like, oh, I didn't even know that there were five things. God, I wonder what number four is. And then before you know it, you're about to click on that. If I can make security content that appealing in some way to where it opens up this little, you know, uh, itch in your mind that you're not going to be satisfied until you scratch it. Well, then I've I've in, I've automatically got buy-in from that person to take the next step. And so I, I see my job is always winning the next thirty seconds of attention in some way. Uh, and and if I can do that, then I can continue to propel that forward. Huh. Interesting. Martian, do you think that you elicit curiosity in our organization for security? Oh, for, for, for sure. For some, yes. Uh, for some, it's a longer longer role, but definitely in the end, uh, that's, that's, that's the, 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 the real purpose, right? Uh, we don't want to get, give people, you know, ready, ready to use knowledge because we cannot keep up with, with changing world, right? We have to give them uh, that way of thinking that's, uh, you know, ability to go outside of the normal scheme and apply the same safe principles to to those you know unnecessarily shown behaviors that we already you know outlined have had up you know training about uh, something that is fresh and new we want for them to default to security and, and and make sure that they are curious in making sure that whatever they are entering a new space new technology new product uh, they are applying kind of the same uh, principles on a higher level, and and that's actually the curiosity, like being able to be curious how my actions will play out from a security space, and that, that's that's our way of thinking on on how to make sure that people actually take the default secure action. We we also kind of put um, I don't know what the right word would be, but I guess there's a bit of fanfare to our security team. Um, that people all think it's a very like awesome group and we know a lot about things that you may not know about in the security space. So we really try to offer that knowledge to people who are interested. Like, hey, if you want to know how malware works, happy to have you shadow us and we can show you how this tool works. And I think that our learning content, you know, that we have put together and all the videos and the, the quizzes and all this kind of stuff, we don't just say like, okay, what kind of, you know, phishing is there? It gets deeper than that. And we offer these increased levels that you can go further. Yes, we want you to understand a lot of intro information and how to better protect yourself in your own life. But we also want you to, if you have that curiosity, to go deeper to become just as good at security as some of us who've been doing it for years are. We'd love for that. It's almost like we want you to catch that bug. We want you to be yeah. a part of that. And it's a big it's a big part of where we've set it up. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I think that there is a there's like a push and pull 
that comes with these things or or set up in a resolution that should come with it is that you're you're inducing that curiosity and then as soon as they find a way to start to address that you're you're rewarding them with comfort in some way you know get a little bit of a dopamine release and then you build up a little bit it, it's it's a, a little bit like a you know a great spy novel or or any good bit of writing um, you build a situation um, you kind of add some conflict in that in some way and then you bring a resolution and that gives a, a catharsis I think that security awareness can be a little bit like that I also think that on the other side of it if I can never successfully induce curiosity or give somebody that that forward momentum, well, then I need to find a way to build behavioral guardrails around that. And that can be a technology-based solution like uh, some kind of uh, browser containers or it can be um, some other layer of security that I put in place. But if I can never induce somebody to participate in it, um, then I've got to find the way to still make that person safe or make the organization safe with that person as part of it. You know, rewarding with comfort is such an intriguing concept in a world where security has been such a, a penalized, like, oh, you've clicked too many fish, you're fired. So I will want to chat more on how to reward or not. Yeah. But speaking of setup, I feel like you you did a good setup for me to actually ask you something. We're going to quiz you on your own book, by the way. Here oh, we go. No. <laughs> I'm going to suck at this. It's been a good no, year since not. I read it. No, no. Um, you mentioned a fog behavior model component, and you talk yeah. about um, this idea about the prompt and the motivation, and, and you talk about a glass of water as like an example mm -hmm. of how you approach this. But if somebody were to say, like, how would you explain this dynamic between the model of, of prompt and motivation, how would you try to explain this for us so that we could yeah. really grasp this in our own in our own companies? Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question. So the the fog model I see is kind of like the E equals M C square of security or, or behavior. I mean it it is it's a generalized behavior model that is really simple when you first look at it because it is just uh, you know, B equals MAP. So behavior equals a combination of motivation, uh, ability, and prompt at the time of the behavior. And the way that fog talks about it is that um you know, behavior happens when three things come together at the same time, motivation. Um, so somebody has the right amount of motivations, which so motivation can range from um, being low to high. Ability can range from being something that's very hard to do to something that's very easy to do. And then the prompt is something internal or external that says, all right, we need we want you to do this thing. And so there's a compensatory relationship between all of these different pieces. Um, if I have fully in me the ability to do something, but I don't have the motivation to do it, then if you ask me to do it, I'm not going to. Any of us that are parents know that that's the case. Go clean your room. Our kids know what a good clean room looks like, but they may not I would be motivated argue to do so. They don't know that. Like, I, I there's definitely there's say been, I would argue back <laughs> and say at one point oh, in your life. It. We yeah. found our argument. Here we yeah, go. Exactly. Okay, kids clean the room. One. At, All right. at one point in your life, you've gotten frustrated enough that you've gone and cleaned their room and said, this is this is what I want. This is the goal state. Or you, when you moved into your house, you set it up in that way. Um, but they've, they've seen an example. 
I do. I don't think Marchin will be surprised, but, and this is absolutely a completely sideways thing to say, but I do have a thing that my husband finds hilarious where I will look at my kids and say, um, is your room ready for inspection? Mm. (laughs) And they look at me like doe eyes kind of for a moment. Uh, I'll be right back. And they go upstairs and then they like slam everything in their closets and under the bed and everything. And that's the first place I go for inspection, right? Human nature. I'm going to go exactly where I know as a kid, I used to throw things. So, um, but yes, they have seen it clean. You are correct. They know the appearance of clean. They may not know the, the detail of clean. (laughs) Yes. They um, don't. Yeah. Yeah. But, but so, so let's, let's assume that they have the ability. They know what it looks like. They're not lacking any training. Um, they're not lacking, you know, they're, they're, they're not tied up in their closet when you're asking them to clean up their room. Um, so they've got all the things that they need to do. They, they would just rather play on their PlayStation or something. Um, the, hmm. so the other thing is, and this is where I think we fail sometimes as security teams. Um, I can have somebody with all the right motivation and I can be prompting them all the, all day long but they may not have the actual ability to do the thing that I want them to do. And my, my rant on this is I think we as um, security practitioners, we, we kind of have this mantra all the time of saying, you need better passwords. You need to not share passwords. You need to not write them down. You need to um, not use them across different systems, not use the same one across different systems. Um, and as humans right now, in the century that we live in, we're managing upwards of 200 different accounts each. And no, nobody that I know can remember 200 great, unique passwords across 200 different systems that are totally strong, that aren't based on some kind of internal algorithm that I could determine. And so that's where um, I can have all the right motivation in the world. The ability piece is just not there. There's going to be a compromise. And so at that point, you say, if I'm prompting somebody all day long, they've got all the right motivation and they're just never going to have the ability. The only thing I'm going to do is frustrate them and make them feel pathetic. And so I need to step in there with a tool like a password manager or password with passwordless authentication or something else to enable that and give the, the, the comfort and then bring that password um, proliferation problem down. Maybe they only need to remember one, five, ten, but it starts to become a much more manageable number. Is it, um, you know, and Marsha, I'm interested to know what you think, but you talk about this dynamic. So let's say having to handle that many passwords, the human mind isn't going to remember them all as we have to refresh them so often and so on. So we have to use some kind of a tool in order to do this to become more effective at it. Uh, but you mentioned also at times the size of your security team is rather small comparative to what you're trying to protect and an organization. So little circle, big circle, right? Mm-hmm. And we try to approach fixing this with this, this culture and this shift of culture, but we also do it with these tools like password managers in your example. What are some of the tools you think are most important for security awareness? You know, I think there are a couple of those that are, you know, used daily. Some of them are some center point for organizations. Um, like so just, just to give you an example, uh, we used to use uh, an intranet pages, right? Uh, whether it's a Confluence or other other tools where we publish information, and and, and that kind of way, it's is a very basic thing to do. Th- those resources and those tools 
used to be only informative. And, and right now they need to be dynamic. That's something that we need to go back to. And the same goes for password managers. Uh, we used to have, you know, I remember uh, a, a long time ago, uh, you know, managing passwords in a, you know, take Stefa somewhere out there shared on our space because there were no other tools that would make this dynamic and shared and properly protected and audited and so on and so forth. And the same goes for any other thing. And I think that's basically uh, our doom for thinking only, you know, people, tech and processes uh, as a separate things, they are intertwined, and whenever we talk about you know people making sure that people are uh, retracting to their you know uh, proper behaviors in the new world with with new tech, this actually means introducing new tech. You know, using uh, password managers that are you know previously they have been static. Right now, I think a lot of us are using something that is more dynamic in the cloud, accessible everywhere, available on all the you know different devices. Uh, but now we also move to uh, you know uh, those those tokens that are not uh, you know. I would say dumb uh, numbers that are randomly shown on your keychain, but are you know uh, <laughs> basically a small computers that are doing cryptography functions to to authenticate yourself. So leveraging that key component of each of people, tech, and process, and making them you know work in the same cycle, that's I think the key. So for password managers, that's one example. Uh, you know from from text files somewhere out there going to a password manager skied up with some cool tech behind it and process, that's a way to go. Perry, what do you think? Is there a technology we should call out specifically? Is it learning management systems and all of the, the educational things that we use? Can you give us some examples of what that might be? So people who want to incorporate this into their programs. Oh, so so me give some examples? If you if you give yeah. some examples and then I'm going to quiz Marchin if we have any. <laughs> we'll see how we measure up. Yeah. So, so micro learning from my perspective comes back to understanding people's attention spans and the fact that, um, this model that we've done in our industry for a long time of rounding everybody up in the room for a couple hours and then kind of preaching at them for a while, um, giving them a test and then sending them on their way. Um, none of, uh, None of that works, and I think we all candidly know that that doesn't work um, because there's there's a ton of psychological theory around this with decay of learning and other things, but um, we are only interested in things that are relevant to us at that time, and so this comes back to curiosity again. Um, unless I can induce curiosity, unless I can kind of um, trick the mind into retaining something, it's gone, um, and when we only teach people about things once a year, let's say it is password policy. Uh, if I teach somebody on password policy on January 15th of the year that they're in, most people aren't going to change their passwords that day. The best time to train somebody on passwords or any behavior is at the time that they're actually about to do that because they're naturally more curious. They're more inclined to be curious at least. And so you have to, to inject that, but in a way that's not bothersome at the same time, which is probably another conversation. Um, so micro learning then means that I can take that thing that was a two-hour training and I can break that down into many small sub-segments and, and treat it like a, a marketing program. 
Coca-Cola doesn't just do one campaign a year where they try to get your attention for two hours. Now that they, they, they get you in 30, 60 second bites uh, all the time. And I think security is the same way. We want to, we want to bring that down, cater to the attention span, spark the curiosity and continue the, the messaging over and over and over again. Marchen, what are you thinking? Yeah, this is, this is something that, um, I don't think we, we, we use the word micro-learning micro there, but uh, we actually facilitate something like this uh, in, in a couple of those examples where we had to move in quickly with some cool of this, some cool, cool stuff that we, that we um, shipped out, like, for instance, our cell service. I remember we had uh, you know, the requirement to make sure that people are educated how, how to self-service their access, their, like, this privileged access, and how to properly use it, how to, what, what kind of risks it, 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 you know, it introduces, and so on and so forth. And I, I think there was a, a little bit of discussion whether to include that training as part of our uh, either our security guardian or our you know, basic uh, onboarding for, for engineering teams. Uh, but we ended up in, you know, this is a self-service. And the best way for you to learn that would be just before you want to get some you know, self-service. So we are prepping for getting that type of access at some point. So uh, we, we kind of implemented that as part, as part of the process. So before you, you get any, any type of access, uh, it, it actually checks every time where you, you undergone that training and how long ago, obviously. But generally speaking, every engineer at, at relativity that wants and at some point will need to get an access to some parts that will require self-service will need to go through that you know smaller, more convenient training that is very contextualized to that type of specific action. And, and and use that and and that will definitely stick longer because you know whatever that person will learn uh, through that through that training uh, will be used within the next you know couple of days when when that access is really needed. So that's that's actually I think we leverage that to some extent and that's kind of a you know real time marketing in a you know security awareness space. But that's that's kind of true, yeah. So the, so then if we are trying to make sure we focus that we're giving them this information at a time when it's more useful or applicable and not just like an annual prod of like check the box that you paid attention, do we also have to focus, I guess, like on um, training that's more relevant based on where you're at? So like cultural relativism. Is the training that we do in Poland in security awareness the same as it is that we do in North America? So, Marcin, do you think that there's a separation? Yes and no. Obviously, uh, we, uh, I think every security professional likes to have uniform and holistic culture. That's basically, we want to have the same culture all across, the same level of security. We don't want to have teams that are, you know, lagging behind, that are, uh, you know, using, you know, ill behaviors and so on and so forth. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants to have focus groups that need some more attention. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, culture and global space comes with its own flavors. Uh, there, there is a number of like differentiators from person to person, but also from region to region. So we we, we get that we have that context, contextualization uh, mainly in onboarding to kind of make sure that the way we operate, interact with people, interact with teams, interact with security resources, is really effective. And sometimes it's 
it's based on language and on the you know purest you know problem of, of R, uh, having the language barrier and, and understanding the intent. Uh, the same goes for you know uh, paranoia meter, and, and I am saying that way because uh, you know. Every every security professional that worked in a global company hit the problem on, of looking at privacy a couple of years back when GDPR was rolled out. GDPR, you know, increased paranoia level in some places, uh, and and in some places was totally not not a surprise uh, because the, the the law was already there. So uh, yeah, there is a flavor that we need to employ with making sure that people are operating in the same level, in the same space, but also uh, leveraging those, uh, you know, human finesse and, and global flavors uh, to reinforce the message to make sure that it's effective. Okay, Perry, I mean, I have some debate on this one, but Perry, I'll let you tap yeah. in on this. Um, so the thing that I would say when it comes to diverse um, diversity as far as um, deploying security awareness, th- that there are people that will resonate with different messages at different times at different locations of the world. The, the, one of the big things that we um, have to think about is, let's say you're doing a simulated phishing program. Um, if I'm sending to somebody in Europe and I've got a, a Bank of America template, it's naturally not going to be as affected, uh, effective as if I use something that's more regional to their location. So there's definite tweaks that have to happen there to make it relevant. But there's also an understanding of the um, of the nuance of each specific culture. Let's say I'm trying to encourage fish reporting or incident reporting, and I'm trying to do that in a very um, honor-driven um, structure that respects hierarchy a lot, like a, you know a, an, an Eastern culture like Japan. Um, people there are less likely to speak out against their you know quote unquote superiors because of, of a lot of the the concepts of honor and structure. And so I have to find ways to build messaging that are going to encourage the behavior that I want within that specific region. And I'm going to do that differently than I would in America. You know, it's it's interesting, but there's a natural inclination. If I were to get an email in some capacity that's in a different language, I already am not sure. Like, I'm already not sure what's going on, and I'm going to be careful, right? But there are so many other entities that, well, if it's in Polish, I would think about it, actually. I think I'd be like, oh, Marcin wrote me in his you know, normal language now, right? But there's this dynamic there. Do you automatically have like some concern of like, why is somebody sending me something I clearly can't, can't understand? But there is this cultural aspect that, um, and Perry, I think we've talked about this, that when I had worked at a global organization, the, the exchange has to start out with like, Hi. Yeah. How was your day going? Did you, you know, spend uh, time with your family this weekend? And like, you have to do that. And it's difficult for me because I'm, you know, insecurity. We're like, hey, um, so I need this. You know, let's, uh, what's going on? Like, blah blah blah. And you're like very straightforward. But you have to learn the cultural relativism of like, what is that that normal emic versus edict? What is the perspective culturally internally? Because it would look odd for me to get an email that. If somebody knows me and they send me an email with a whole bunch of like, let's talk about how our weekend was, like, you clearly don't know me. And I can already <laughs> tell you don't know me, right? So I do think um, it's a question about how we design the security awareness, about how we do approach what we're going to use as a simulation. And do we want to, there's a trust dynamic that you have with your company when you're in security. 
mm-hmm. that you're not you're not trying to trick them. You're trying to help them build this muscle. But this dynamic can get messed up over time. And people can start to feel like we are trying to trick them and, oh, you got me. And I didn't want to get you, actually. Yeah. That's not what I wanted. Uh, and I liked it, a lot of things that you say are so positive, Saudi and Perry, and you use such great words of the trust and the honor and, and the more positive way to approach it. Can we use things that are like zero days and not lose the trust of the people. So like whenever COVID hit, there was a simulation that went out because it was real that that they used this for malicious intent, free N95 masks from the CDC if you showed up in this location in the US. And there's a lot of outcry of, oh my God, how could you take advantage of such a horrible time right now and send this to us? But it was a legitimate exploit that was taking place. So what's the thin line here about being, you know, not changing that dynamic with your people? How do you do that? The thin line is all about the relationship that precedes the test. So if you've, I I think that there is, and it's hard to say this um, categorically, but I think that you work with your relation such that there is implicit or explicit permission to do those things. Um, And so one of the things, I'll I'll give you an anecdote. Um, So I work for a company that does simulated fishing. This is it's our entire business model. So obviously, we believe in the efficacy of doing that. And we believe that um, when you do it right, it's super effective. Um, now, you gave an example where somebody did it wrong. You know, they broke a relationship. The relationship wasn't there. So um, at the beginning of the pandemic, I had a customer um, call and say, how do we do this right? Because I don't feel good about taking a year off or you know six months off of a fishing program um, because we've, we've gotten great results so far. Um, but at the same time, I, I'm really afraid of this time in everybody's life, just doing something wrong. Um, and they had had some, um, some relationship problems with their people in the past. And so I said, give, give me the weekend to think about it and I'll, I'll uh, set something up for you. And so what I ended up doing over the weekend is I created um, a set of videos. One was, it's basically commercials for fishing. <laughs> and so um, you'd put the first one out and it says, you know, basically, hey, everybody's struggling right now. There's a, a global pandemic going on. Everybody's changing their work habits. People are stressed out. People are sick. There's lots and lots of concerns. But you need to be aware that cyber criminals are taking advantage of that and they're sending emails like this. And then it went on to say, and because of all of this, um, we need you to be super suspect of anything that comes in. Um, and we are going to be um, using some of those same things in the way that we test. It's not to trick anybody or to make any, you know, call anybody out or to make them feel bad, but it's to help us protect the organization and to help you become a vital part of that. And um, so we set it up right. And we said, you know, it's not to trick anybody or to laugh at them. Um, it is because you are a critical chain in the, the defensive posture here. And so um, that was done in a super friendly way, done as a commercial. And then um, then you start to, to be able to send those things out because you set the tone appropriately. And then your follow-up is critical too, because at the point of follow-up, if you redirect to a page that feels scolding or something else, then that's bad. So if somebody clicked on that, the next video that it would go to is a thing that basically said, oops, you clicked, but that's okay. Um, you're safe. The company is safe. And here's why we've you know, had to do these things. And it reinforces all those other points. 
Hmm. Is there ever, okay, March, and you don't get to answer this one first. Do you ever get to a place where it becomes punitive? Do you ever say, okay, enough is enough. You have failed so many times. You have led to a company breach or et cetera. Do you ever get punitive or do you always have this very nice, happy, yeah. holistic <laughs> perspective? That's a that's a hard one to answer. I'm way more carrot than stick um, because I do believe that if somebody fails over and over and over, that there's probably something messed up within the context that we've put that person. That being said, there are organizations that have really, really high risk naturally, and they cannot afford to have somebody fail in a phishing test over and over and over again. And so the punitive piece comes into that. Have I set um, is my organization something that cannot tolerate this risk? And are we at the point where there is no other layer of protection that we can put as a net under this person? Um, and so have, the, the first thing I'm always going to do is look at, have we somehow failed, failed this person, which is let it, leading to their supposed quote-unquote failure of this phishing scenario? Um, and if I can, with a clear conscience, say we've done everything we could possibly do as an organization to set this person up for success, then there is a you know series of steps that you take somebody through. But it may not be firing that person. It may be relocating that person to an area where they can be successful, a different job, maybe reducing their permission set. Um, I'm going to look at those things before I say three strikes and you're out. Huh. Wow. I, so I don't have my answer and I'm going to ask Martin for his because I think I'm still exploring how to be humanistic in this way. And you've clearly gotten there. Like you've clearly gotten to the mountaintop of Nirvana of how to be very humanistic with the way you're doing it. And I think I'm like 80% there. Well, it's, I mean, it's easier for me because I'm not running a security program right now. <laughs> right? Yes, but like, if, I was, yes. if I was a CISO, then, yeah. then my perspective may shift a little bit. Um, but I would like to think that I'm always going to sit, you know, even if I'm in a CISO space to say, how, how have I, um, or how is the company? Because maybe I've asked for budget for something that, I've, that hasn't been approved, like browser containers, um, and that's not been approved. Well, now that starts to become part of my, that person's failure, quote unquote failure, becomes part of my business case for this other thing that can help us. You know, um, so Marchin, it, it's funny because I think one one time somebody said, what is a, a thing that people don't know about you till they get to know you? And I I've, I've, I thought about this and I asked the people who I work with closely, like, what do I say to this answer? I don't know. And it was that um, I come across as like very like humanistic, but behind things, I run the very tight ship and I have a very like financial government style background and things have to be perfect. And I expect the best. And there's no question, uh, which is why I kind of struggle with this. And I think I'm still trying to find who I am as a CISO in this space because there is so much of me that is focused like this and, and I don't want to do punitive. Uh, but there's also this part of you that grew up that way. You know, I went to school uphill both ways in the snow. Why don't you? And, yeah. you know, you better not click. And, and you have to break that cycle um, in order to be better, this next generation of security professionals. And I know that. And I think I'm, I'm still trying for it, but I'm intrigued, Marchin. How do you feel about punitive or not? Uh, I have a slightly different answer here. Uh, wherever I come across a situation when I actually have to choose where I go into a space that is punitive, I kind of turn it away into space of 
where it's uh, protective of or preventive. And it, it's it's more or less making sure that we are actually, you know, fulfilling our responsibilities to our people, to our organization, to our stakeholders, customers, uh, and, and then looking back on what we can, w- whether that's actually also punitive as well. And uh, I think I'm a little bit on, on Paris' side here. Uh, there are a number of things that might prevent us from uh, having a success and, 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 and that are not largely uh, dependent on, on, on the person itself. We might, you know, set that person uh, improperly in their role, uh, improperly equip them with the, with the why. And maybe there are a number of things that we actually can add to this to make sure that it doesn't happen. But at some point, we have to fulfill our obligations and, and make sure that our responsibilities are intact. And uh, I like the, the, the answer that Perry gave uh, about, you know, I would I would have a different point of view if I would be a CISO. That's actually a very cool, like, I, I think I have different perspective on looking at, at employees that I, you know, try to uh, protect our customers, try, I, I try to protect. And I'm a little bit on the side of, you know, making sure that I understand twice. And I have different Probably different approach to looking at my employees. If my, my you know, my person that uh, that is you know reporting in my structure would would make a couple of those mistakes, I would be probably more into, uh, you know, making sure that everything is a little bit more on the perfect side, than than because I'm more responsible for 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 their performance, for their uh, you know success ratio, and so on and so forth. Like different metrics, different KPIs. Yeah. yeah there's. I, oh, go ahead, Perry. I, I was going to say, I think the critical thing that always comes back to my mind is that. We are only human. You know, that, that, that phrase exists for a reason. Um, and in the right context, you or I or anybody else can be fished. We can, we can make the mistake. Um, at one point in the book, I list this, this whole thing that security people are typically, um, you know, run afoul of is we, we preach this. Um, and yet, you know, let, let's say passwords again. We say you need to create a strong password. It needs to be unique. It needs to not be shared. And yet in the moment when we're, let's say, on our mobile phone and we go sign into something and it, it cre- makes us create an account, we don't have our password manager there, what do we do? In the, that moment, we go, oh, I'll, do, I'll use this crap password um, and then I'll go back and change it later. And we never do. Um, or we're presented with the, the offer of setting up MFA. And we just don't feel like we have time right then because we, we need to get into the system. We don't need to be bothered with doing this other piece, piece of administration. Or I'm just going into the store for a minute. I, I guess I can leave my laptop in the front seat. Um, so we all do these things as security professionals. Just about everybody does. And yet we preach against it. And when somebody in our organization falls you know, on the other side of that, we tend to want to condemn that person. But I, but I think most of us end up um, crossing the line in just about every area that we preach vehemently against. All right. Well, I will say that I only made it halfway through the questions in the book that I had for you. This may wow. become a serial conversation <laughs> at some point. Sure. Yeah. If you ever want to uh, to do another episode or even just follow up with a chat. Yes. This was just, there's just so much. Um, and it's so nice to talk to somebody who does keep this so alive and, and so mm. fresh. But I will say there were a few things that come top of mind that I hope that listeners will walk away with on this one. The first one, security programs need to take accountability as well. Did we set them up for success and how did we make them curious about it? I think that's such a very pure way to look at this and to take that accountability. Leveraging a key component of the people tech process 
incorporate them into that cycle and the workflow is really the best way to approach this, which is how a lot of us do. And it's great that we're doing it that way. But I love this part about thinking of security as a, a security program, as a marketing program, where you facilitate those micro learnings, those piece by piece bits, keep these things primed at all times and, and give people the things that are the most useful for them. These were all ones that came to me. This trust dynamic so important. And clearly, we finally disagree on what kids' clean rooms look like. We found <laughs> our one thing to disagree on. <laughs> but I just, this has been a wonderful time, and I do hope we get to talk again. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for digging into these topics with us today. We hope you got some valuable insights from the episode. Please share your comments, give us a rating. We'd love to hear from you. Security Sandbox is produced by Relativity. Our theme music was created by Monarch. Find us wherever you listen to your podcasts or visit Relativity.com for more episodes. 